energy. So the barber trims my beard all nice, like an artist. Now, I didn't tell him to do that. I wanted the beard gone. So then I went home and shaved it off completely after I was done. I felt horrible. The passion. Rafael Devers is the biggest contract in franchise history. He needs to be a leader for this Red Sox team. The opinions on all your favorite teams. Are the Patriots close to playoff contention? Yes. Are they close to Super Bowl contention? Hell no. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV-AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Brady Farkas Show back at it here on WDEV-AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. It is a Thursday. I am very happy to have the internet back, have the phones back, have the text line back. Those of you that were with us yesterday, man, that was that was crazy. That was the hardest day of radio I've ever had. Not from the content perspective, just in terms of the actual execution of being on the air. Man, that was nuts. I've never experienced anything quite like that. No internet, no phones, inability to talk to the usual people we talk to, no Roger during the news, et cetera. That was crazy. And then the FM was out. The stream was out. Smart speaker was out. All we had was the AM. AM. I know some of you were with us there. I see some of you have texted in You know, during yesterday's show. I wasn't able to see them all because I was trying to utilize my phone to see the text line, and even that was spotty. So I'm happy things are back to normal today. The Red Sox have already played today. They lost to the Rays earlier today by a score of 9-3. to three. We'll take a look at the highlights coming up in about 15 minutes. Red Sox actually had a lead in this one at one point led three to one but ultimately do lose nine to three you can get in on the text line 802-585-3026 we are brought to you by fecto homes we are back streaming on the internet today i've fixed the button that needed to be fixed and now our internet stream works again so appreciate everybody uh who likes to watch us there online and with that being fixed it means we'll have more highlights again on social media so a lot of good stuff there Red Sox lose 9-3, beaten by the Rays, who have won 13 in a row. They're tied for the best start to a season in Major League history. The Red Sox have lost four straight now. They are now 5-8 and eight on the season. Let's look broadly at what is wrong with the Boston Red Sox. Because I am starting to reach my breaking point with this team, and I'm starting to reach my breaking point with High and Bloom. I'm not completely broken yet on High and Bloom, but I am starting to reach my breaking point on him. I have defended High and Bloom a lot. I have spun things in High and Bloom's favor a lot. And I think I get the macro process here with the Red Sox, but what the Red Sox are doing is not working. And let's... There's two things that can be wrong for the Red Sox. Let's examine them. One is that the thought process is wrong. Or two, the execution of that thought process is wrong. Now, for me with the Red Sox, the execution of the thought process is wrong. I look at the Thursday lineup against the Rays, and that just embodies it. The Red Sox now, their struggles now, their up-and-down nature, their fourth and fifth-place projections 
in the AL East, they are a product of poor execution. Let me explain. I truly believe with every fiber of my being that I get what Hyam Bloom is going for. I truly believe I get what he's going for. I get what he is trying to do. It's very clear to me that Hyam Bloom is trying to build a homegrown core for his baseball team. And I have talked a lot about this. Having a homegrown core matters. The best way to win in baseball in 2023 is with a homegrown core, with homegrown players that you develop, that you cultivate, that you bring into your culture, and that are generally less expensive for a longer period of time. That way, that culture building, that that prospect development, that homegrown core, that way has proven to work. The Astros have been largely a homegrown core. Altuve, Bregman, Arquiti, Valdez, even previously to that, Keuchel, Springer, Correa. Yes, the Astros have signed and traded for other players, but largely they have been a homegrown core. The Dodgers have signed and traded for players, but largely they were a homegrown core, right? Kershaw, Arias, Bueller, Bellinger, Seager, Turner, who was not drafted and developed by then, but was brought in early and cultivated by them. Again, that is a homegrown core largely for the Dodgers. Kenley Jansen. The Royals were a homegrown team when they won the World Series. Largely. Hosmer, Gordon, Moustakis. The Braves win the World Series. They're a homegrown team largely. Max Freed and Ian Anderson and Ozzy Albies and Ronald Acuna and Austin Riley. That is how these good teams have done it, and these teams have stayed good by having a homegrown core. The Blue Jays are largely the same way. My Mariners are largely the same way. Okay, You can win by just trying to spend your way to a title. The Mets are trying to do that. The Padres are trying to do that. The Phillies almost accomplished it last year, and they doubled down on it this offseason. So you could do it, but being a homegrown team largely has proven very, very fruitful. That is what Haim Bloom is trying to do, and I support that. But the problem with the Red Sox is this. Their execution of that plan has not worked. Because look around the Red Sox. Look around their 25-man roster. Look around their 40-man roster. That homegrown core, that ain't there. It's taking too long to develop. So I don't believe that the thought process is wrong, but you're somewhere the system is breaking down. You're identifying the wrong players or you're not developing them properly, but properly, but somewhere there is a problem. I saw this week the Red Sox called a collection of spare parts. And you know what? That's largely true. Why? Because the development or the identification of players isn't working like it's supposed to. So you're left with this kind of leftover stuff that is forced to be the key to your roster. Look, Adam Duvall is a good player. Should he be a guy that crushes the lineup when he's not there? No. Kike Hernandez is a good, useful major league player. Should he be like the third most important player in your starting nine? No. Christian Arroyo, the same thing. I like 
if the Red Sox, if a lot of the Red Sox starters were the Red Sox depth pieces, I'd be saying nothing but great things about them and their roster construction. But the fact is, is that the Red Sox are whiffing on their prospect development and they are whiffing on identifying guys and they are forcing these extra pieces into major roles that they shouldn't necessarily have. That's the problem. You can criticize John Henry for being frugal all you want. You can criticize High and Bloom for being cheap all you want. The right way to win in baseball, I believe fundamentally, is develop a homegrown core and then supplement it with the other stuff, with the spending, with the trades. And the Red Sox aren't hitting on really any of that. There have been some wins. Garrett Whitlock is a win. It's and Not everything is a total whiff, but largely the plan is not being executed properly. Look around. Connor Wong was acquired in the Mookie Betts deal. Does he look like a star catcher for a decade for you to build around? No. He doesn't look like Adley Rutschman. He doesn't look like Cal Raleigh. He doesn't look like Will Smith. These guys are foundational pieces for their team. Connor Wong is a bit part. The Red Sox didn't get the guy there. Look at other moves they have made. You traded Andrew Benintendi, who's a founda- who, who was a foundational piece of a championship team. And I understand he really, really regressed in 2019 and 20. I was fine getting rid of Andrew Benintendi. But what'd you get? Josh Winkowski, who is nothing but a depth long relief arm right now. What else did you get? Franchi Cordero, who you got rid of. So you got nothing for your World Series winning left fielder. You whiffed there. You you brought in Adam Adovino, who was good for you in 2021. Who else did you get? This guy, Frank German, guy we were all high on. Good prospect. What'd you do? DFA'd him. He's out of the organization. So Wong didn't bring you anything. You haven't gotten anything from from the Adovino return with German. He's out. The Benintendi trade yielded you nothing. You look at the moves the Red Sox have made. Jaron Duran. This is a guy that was supposed to be one of their top prospects. He can't stay with the big league team consistently. He hasn't been there at all this year. That's a problem. So we talk about the Red Sox farm system getting better, but some of the guys they've been counting on to help them generate that young core aren't there. They don't exist. I can point to other good teams in baseball, and I can point to five and six and seven homegrown foundational pieces, and the Red Sox have maybe three right now. Devers is one. Casas is two. And then Bayo, we hope, is three. And that's it. Right? I can look at the Blue Jays, and I can point to right off the top of my head, Alec Manoa, Vlad Jr., Bo Bichette, uh, Alejandro Kirk, Kevin Biggio, who again, hasn't been great, but I'm just thinking of guys off the top of my head. Jordan Romano, their closer. I can point to my Mariners, Cal Raleigh, Ty France, uh, JP Crawford, Julio Rodriguez, Jared Kelnick, George Kirby, Logan Gilbert, Andres Munoz, Paul Seawold. These will, these are Guys that they have drafted, they have signed, or they have gotten and bought low and made better. And the Red Sox don't really have any of that. They've got Devers, they've got Casas, and they've got hopefully Bayo. There is no foundational stud pitcher for you to build around. 
There is no foundational. There are not enough foundational everyday players for you. That's what other good teams have. So to me, it's not the plan. The plan is okay. The problem is the execution. You've got, if you're going to be frugal, you've got to hit on guys. If you're going to trade guys to save money, you've got to hit on guys. And here's the thing. I believe that Hyam Bloom has done a decent job right now at the low minors. Marcelo Mayer and Nick York and the kid they got from the Astros in the Christian Vasquez trade, these guys all look good. The problem is they're too far away from the big league team to help you now. So I do believe there's a wave coming for the Red Sox. But I don't know that High and Bloom is going to be here to see it come to fruition because the lag time that it's taking to get to that wave, it's taking too long. This first wave of talent that was supposed to help Duran and Wong and Verdugo, all we've really got is Alex Verdugo, who's a slightly above average player. All these other guys the Red Sox are playing with are extra pieces. They're depth pieces. They should be your seventh and eighth guy in the lineup, not your third and fourth. So again, High and Bloom has a good plan. But somewhere in the process of execution, something is broken. It's the Brady Farkas Show here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. We are brought to you by Fecto Homes. A couple of texts coming in on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line. Phil in Middlesex says, High and Bloom is the big problem. Virginia in Starksboro says, uh, this comes down to John Henry being an idiot. Peter in Williston says, What's wrong with the Red Sox is that you could start a game in place of Corey Kluber and it'd be much cheaper. That's the other thing, too. Think about the rotation. Right? Think about the rotation. All around baseball, teams have some foundation. The good teams have some foundational homegrown players. And then they're able to build out from there. Right? Again, I, I use my Mariners a lot because I know them the best outside of the Red Sox. George Kirby and Logan Gilbert are two foundational pieces. They have them cheap under control for six, seven years, and they are at the top of their rotation. And you know that. And then what do the Mariners do? The Mariners go out and they trade for Luis Castillo. They sign Robbie Ray. And then you have a fifth guy in there now in Chris Flexen, who's okay. But you have four starters there, two of which are homegrown and two of which you went out and tried to push over the edge for. The Red Sox don't have a lot of any of that. They got one, we hope, in Bayo, and we're not even sure. And we're not even sure. All right, we're brought to you by Fecto Homes. Red Sox lose today to the Rays, final score 9-3. We'll play the highlights back for you. Red Sox had a lead at one point in this one. That fell apart fast. We'll get to it next on DEV. Think you know sports better than Brady does? Text in with your thoughts at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEV Radio.com. 
Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Texter says, even my awful Reds have found foundational starters to be excited about. There's three of them there. Hunter Green, Graham Ashcraft, and Nick Lodolo. For a team like the Red Sox to have failed miserably in drafting and developing frontline starters is sad and doesn't bode well for the near future. I, I'm with you on that. I, I would totally agree with that. The Boston Red Sox are not doing a good enough job at developing players, right? The Red Sox are getting players. They're getting players with some, you know, they're getting young players that have some upside and they're failing to either bring it out in them or put them in positions where they can thrive. And that is a problem. Like if Brian Bayo comes up and isn't good, there really is going to be hell to pay. Right? I mean, look, the kid today who started for Tampa, Jeffrey Springs, hadn't allowed a run until this year, until today, when he allowed the home run to Ref Snyder. Does anybody remember that he was a player for the Red Sox in 2020? I've tried to block out the COVID year the best I can, but Jeffrey Springs played for the Red Sox in 2020. Didn't see anything in him, couldn't figure anything out with him. Goes to Tampa three years later. He's been in the big leagues all three years. He's an excellent pitcher for them, an important pitcher for them, and a starter for them. And the Red Sox couldn't figure anything out with him. Like, you're not going to hit with every guy. You're not going to be able to turn every guy into something. But the Rays have done a pretty good job at turning every guy into something. And the Red Sox aren't able to do that right now. Again, at the low minors, I believe there's something there. Right? Blaze Jordan, Marcelo Mayer. Mata, he's a little higher up, closer to the big leagues. Nick York, there are guys that the Red Sox have at the low minors. But at the upper minors and here in the majors, they are. it is not translating. And that is the problem. The Red Sox aren't spending their way out of this problem. They're not developing their way out of this problem. And as a result, they just are kind of left with a ho-hum roster. Again, the players they have are good, but they're put in positions that have to be far too important. This this rotation shouldn't be relying on Corey Kluber. It should have Corey Kluber as the fifth guy in the back end. This rotation shouldn't be relying on Garrett Whitlock. He should be one of the better fifth starters in the league. And instead, these guys are starting, like Corey Kluber starting opening day at 37 years old. It shouldn't be that way. Kike Hernandez is a good player. Christian Arroyo is a good player. Adam Duvall is a good player. They shouldn't have to be counted on. Tristan Casas is a rookie. He's got one month of major league experience. He should be able to be hidden in the seven spot in the lineup. And he should be able to just see nothing but fastballs because he's got a lot of protection all around him, all around the order. And instead, here he is today in game 13, having to hit fourth. It shouldn't be that way. They're not drafting well enough. They're not developing well enough. I shouldn't say they're not drafting well enough. I think they are drafting well, but those guys are so far away from the majors. They're not developing well enough. And then even when they spend they're not getting great return on investment. Trevor Story, six years, $140 million. Do you remember the last time he played? You're not getting a return on that investment. 
it's too early to comment on Yoshida. He just hasn't come out and been gangbusters yet. I think Yoshida will be good. I'm bullish on that. I think that will end up being good money. But even him, he comes out in a position where he's got to be the guy right away. That's not fair to him. We have to rely on 38-year-old Justin Turner? It should not be this way. It should not. The Boston Red Sox, I am okay with High and Bloom's plan. But the execution of it has been very, very poor. Let's get to the uh, highlights from today's game. Again, Red Sox beaten by the Tampa Bay Rays. The final score was 9-3. to three. This, this Red Sox lineup was the worst lineup I can remember being put out there by the Red Sox. I mean, I'm sure in this COVID season it was worse at one point, but it really felt like not a very good thing. Look, Devers didn't play. Yoshida didn't play. Duvall was out. Rob Refsnyder was hitting third. Bobby Dahlbeck was hitting fifth. This Costas was hitting fourth. This was not a good spot to be in if you were the uh, Red Sox. But the Sox did get up one nothing early. Rob Refsnyder homered off Jeffrey Springs out of that three spot. Here's Rob Refsnyder, who not often in his whole career has hit in the three-hole. He does today from the right side, and he drives this pitch way back to left field. It is way back, and it is gone. Rob Refsnyder. So that made it one nothing. Red Sox. Rays would come right back, bottom of the first inning, leadoff home run, Yandy Diaz. 2-1 is hammered into the gap in left center field. Refsnyder watches, so does the center fielder, and it is gone. Yandy Diaz, the first hitter of the first, has tied the game at one. Yeah, Diaz made it 1-1. Red Sox would have a 2-1 lead. Then they'd have a 3-1 lead. Good stuff here from Justin Turner, which gave them that lead. Here's the pitch, and Turner loops it into shallow center field. Low started back now in, and he will dive and not make the play. Coming home, the score is Arroyo, and the Red Sox tack one on. It's 3-1. to one. Big knock there from Turner. He continues to swing the bat well. He's getting knocks last couple of days. This wasn't the rocket he's been hitting last couple of days, but off the end, off, probably get jammed here a little bit. It's perfect. Yeah, so that made it 3-1, and then the onslaught started for the Rays, right? Eight unanswered runs. Rays did a little bit of everything at that point. Francisco Mejia with a single made it 3-2. to two. Then there was a uh, hit from Brandon Lau, which tied the game at 3-3. Three, three. Then we saw, well, this one's going to infuriate some people. Oh, no, Randy Arozarena single to make it 4-3. to three. And then Manuel Margot pinch hitting. Two down, bases loaded. Here it is. And a bunt attempt on the third baseline. Blyer gloves. He will have no throw. It's a run-scoring bunt hit with the bases loaded. The Rays can do it all. It's 5-3. Things go well. They go well. You just start out thinking of the teams and just taking chances. Just playing better brand of baseball right now, the Tampa Bay Rays. Manuel Margot, a bunt single with the bases loaded and then the floodgates opened here two down bases still loaded ramirez grounds one to third pass goal back into the corner and this may clear the bases a rosarena scores franco behind him margot gets the wave no throw made bases clearing double for harold ramirez and it's eight three tampa yeah eight three there tampa harold ramirez with the hit and that was that red sox would lose like Red Sox came into this game undermanned. They came in 
up against it. When you're not playing Devers, you're not playing Yoshida, you're not playing Duvall. Nobody expected the Red Sox to win. I give them credit. They battled, right? They had a lead into the middle innings. They were up three to one. They gave it their all. What they're doing here is for is not for a lack of trying. That's certainly true, but you only get so many moral victories in pro sports, right? Trying hard doesn't go all that far, right? It's one thing when we say, I, I can give you a moral victory in the NFL one game here when I say, ah, you battled hard and you overcame this, you got all these guys injured. That's true. I can give you one or two of those a year in the NFL. I can, I can congratulate you on never giving up here in Major League Baseball, but the bottom line is this. It's a result, results-based business, and the Red Sox got their clock cleaned. Four games in a row, they just lost to the Rays. They have not beaten the Rays in Tampa since April 22nd of last year. They've lost 13 consecutive games in Tampa against Tampa. Unacceptable. Absolutely unacceptable. And the thing about the Rays that makes them so good, and they're 13-0 and right now, best start since 1987. The things that makes them so good is they just put pressure on you. That's what great teams in baseball do. When I watch the Astros, I think the same thing. When I watch the Blue Jays, I think the same thing. When I watch the Braves, I think the same thing. These teams just don't stop coming. They can beat you in a myriad of different ways. You look at the Rays, look, they're hard. They don't strike out. They don't give away at bats. They put the ball in play. They 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 work a long at bat. They drag, they jack up your pitch count. You throw a leadoff walk, then they make you pay. Ball gets booted yesterday in the first inning. Boom, three-run homer. That's what good teams do. They never stop coming. You give them a free pass, they turn it into a run. You give them an air, they turn it into a run. You do two of those things, they turn it into a three-run homer. That is life when you play really good baseball teams. And right now, that's happening to the Red Sox, and they're not doing it enough. The Rays create traffic, and they cash it in, and they cash in on your mistakes. It's the Brady Farkas Show, brought to you by WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Interesting question on the text line, and one baseball insider is not a believer in the Rays. I'll tell you what they had to say. That's next on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Texter says, do you think rumors John Henry and company might be lining up to sell the Red Sox as hampering capacity and interest in competing at the same high level Red Sox fans are accustomed to? No, but I, I just think that... I think at the end of the day, sports owners are business people, right? And they all want the same thing, right? Every team would like to win a championship. But I think everybody has a different business philosophy on how to go about that. John Henry has won four championships this decade, or this century, I should say. I think John Henry feels like he doesn't have to go spend to chase a championship, right? John Henry doesn't have to spend to go chase a championship. John Henry looks around baseball and says, that team won with a homegrown core. That team won with a homegrown core. That team won with a homegrown core. 
that team won with a homegrown core. Why don't we win with a homegrown core? Heck, John Henry looks around. Look at his 2018 Red Sox. What did he have? A largely homegrown core. Xander Bogarts, homegrown. Andrew Benintendi, homegrown. Mookie Betts, homegrown. Rafi Devers, homegrown. Dustin Pedroia, not really a part of that team, but in general, Dustin Pedroia, homegrown. Now, he had a bigger deal. I get that. Nathan Evaldi, inexpensive acquisition. Steve Pierce, inexpensive acquisition. Jackie Bradley, homegrown. Chris Sale wasn't expensive then. They used their farm system to go acquire him. He was inexpensive. I think John Henry says everybody else wins that way. We have won that way. That's how we should be winning. Now go replicate it. Right? I think that's exactly what John Henry says. Everybody else is winning that way. Why don't you try to replicate that? You don't have, we can win the title without having to massively overspend. John Henry looks at it like I spent on Hanley Ramirez and didn't win. I spent on Pablo Sandoval and didn't win. I spent on John Lackey and didn't yield huge championship. I think John Lackey was a part of the 2013 team, but like they didn't get their return on investment from Lackey. I've spent on sale and it hasn't worked out. I think John Henry says, look, let's just, let's win that way. Other organizations, I think, like they want to win too. They're business people and they know that winning a title would be great for their business. So I think the Phillies are content to spend until they win. Right? I think the Phillies look at it like, you know what? We're in Philadelphia. Our basketball team's pretty good. Our football team's really good with just in the Super Bowl. We need to we need to win. So they are going to chase a championship. And they're going to spend on Zach Wheeler, and they're going to lock up Reese Hoskins, and they're going to lock go get Bryce Harper, and they're going to go make moves to sign Trey Turner. Like that, the Phillies are in a different business point right now. Where they're like, for my business, it's really good to win a title. So let's go spend to do it. The Padres have never won a title. I think they think whatever they spend will have been well worth it if they win a title. Because if they win a title, more merchandise and more season tickets, and they can jack up the prices, and they can afford to do what they're doing if they win a title, if they chase the title. I think the Mets are the same way. Mets haven't won a title since when? 86, right? Haven't won a title since the Buckner play. It's more than 30 years. So I think Steve Cohen's like, look, I'll spend whatever it takes. If we win a title, we'll get that investment back. So I think the economics of this play into all of it. I think John Henry just looks around and says, heck, I've won without massive overspending. I've won with a homegrown core. Let's do that again. It's working. It works for other people. Make it work for us. But the problem is that it's not working for the Red Sox. So they're not doing it very well. Rays are 13-0. and They beat the Red Sox today by a score of nine to three. Hey, I do want to remind you real quick coming up about 15 minutes from now, we're going to have Tim Haggerty on the show. I'm very, very excited to talk to him. He is a triple a broadcaster for the San Diego Padres. He is an NBU Linden product. Buster only is always with us on Thursday, but because of the day game, Buster is actually going to be with us tomorrow. So short show tomorrow as the Red Sox get ready for the angels, but we'll have Buster on 
and we will uh, talk with him at uh, 545 tomorrow. So Buster tomorrow, Tim Haggerty, AAA broadcaster for the Padres in about 15 minutes. And again, an NVU Linden product. I've, I'm, I've talked to him before, but I'm fascinated to talk to him again. Chris Mad Dog Russo, right? You know him, sports radio, God. You see him over at ESPN now doing first take. He's on the MLB Network. He said coming into today, he was not impressed with the Tampa Bay Rays. Absolutely not. Let me throw cold water on it. And they only the fourth team, by the way, in baseball to start off 12-0. and Last, 11-0. Last thing to do it with the Brewers in 87. And they lost 12 in a row in May and didn't make the playoffs. Rays have beaten the Tigers, the Nats, the Athletics, who are a triple-A team, and the Red Sox, who they always beat 12 in a row in Tampa. I do not take them seriously as a world's championship team. They win 90 games. But I put a lot of cold water on this winning streak. The opponents, they're not beating the Yankees and the Astros. That's true, but I'll say this. I, I believe that the Rays are really good. Right? I, like I, I think if you are thinking the Rays are not good, that that's on you. Because I, I'm with Russo, right? They're not playing the best teams. But that said, I see teams lose to under 500 teams all the time. The Washington Nationals have four wins. I saw the Mariners just get beat twice by the Cubs. I don't think they're particularly good, right? The Tigers have two wins. The Tigers beat the Astros twice. So good teams lose to garbage teams all the time in Major League Baseball. They lose to garbage teams every night in Major League Baseball. And the Rays haven't lost yet. And as for the Rays being a World Series contender, I would say that they are. And the, the reason why is because they have a good chance to win the division, if you win the division, you are a World Series contender, right? It's going to be really hard for teams to come through the wild card. You got to play the extra game. You got extra travel, potentially extra arms. The other team's rested. It is going to be hard. If you win the division and you're sitting at home waiting, then I think you got a good chance to win it. You look what the Astros did last year, right? They won it. I know the Phillies came through the wild card, but they looked gassed by the end. So if the Rays win the division and force the Yankees and the Blue Jays to have to play in the wild card, yeah, you're absolutely going to be a contender. Absolutely going to be a World Series contender. We'll talk to Buster more about it tomorrow, but what the Rays are doing is really good. The thing about the Rays you have to worry about is the health. Glass now hurt. Eflin now on the injured list, and now you've seen Jeffrey Springs leave today's start early with ulnar uh, colitis or something. And we'll see how that turns out, but you could be out three of your five starters, potentially. That would be a problem there. Texter on the text line, again, 585-3026, says, top organizations like the Red Sox are perceived to have the ability to readily reload their farm systems. With what you've said, seems like the Red Sox chances of competing for titles might be farther off in the distance than fans and management want to admit. The Red Sox right now are not in a position to win titles. Because here, here is the situation that we're at. I'm going to paint it as perfectly clear as possible. The Red Sox young core is far off. The Red Sox young core is probably four, three to four years from being ready to make a real impact. Marcelo Meyer, Nick York, that up-the-middle tandem, uh, Sedan Rafaela, I forgot about him earlier in the show, Sedan Rafaela, I believe he's at 
double A. Someone can correct me on that if he's a triple A, but I thought he's a double A. You're probably three to four years from that group being able to make a real impact on this organization. By that point, you'll have those three young players who are exciting. You'd have Bayo, you'd have Mata, you'd have Casas, and you'd have Devers. That would be the making of an exciting team. You'd have shed a bunch of salary, right? Sale won't be sales deal won't be there anymore by that point. So I would say three to four years is when you're looking at the young core getting ready to really help. When you start to reopen that window with that young group. The other thing you can do is just try to spend your way out of it, which is what a lot of you want the Red Sox to do. Where you go into the offseason this year and you say, you know what? We're done with the plan. We'll let the kids get here when they get here. We're just going to go out. We're going to spend and we're going to buy and we're going to take on salary. and We're going to trade for people. And that's going to be that. And I don't love that. But it is something that you can do. Right? The Mets are doing something similar. The Mets have some homegrown players. Right, they do. Alvarez, the young catcher, Beatty, and the the, the third baseman in the minors. That he's coming up at some point here soon. They've got some guys, McNeil, but they're going to throw money at Scherzer, and they're going to throw money at uh, you know they're going to trade for a big guy like Diaz, like they did. They're going to throw money at Verlander. They got it. They threw money at Taiwan Walker. They've got Alonzo, who's a homegrown player. It's like there are some, the Mets have some of that, but they are trying to throw money at things. The Phillies are trying to throw money at things. The Red Sox could do it. I just don't love that plan. I mean, the Red Sox have kind of executed the plan right. They're just choosing the wrong guys. They've spent money. They spent on Yoshida. They spent on Jansen. They spent on Story. Story just isn't part of it right now. And the young guys they've supposedly been supposed to have been counting on aren't there. Right? They're not a part of this thing. So it's been tough. Yeah, I think the Red Sox right now are years away. And you look at the fun that the Baltimore Orioles are having. I think they're a better team than the Red Sox. Red Sox got them in the opening series. But, I mean, um, I, I don't think they're better than Baltimore. I think Baltimore, I think the Red Sox are a last place team right now. Texter says, do the Red Sox have the money and the guts to pay Shohei Otani in the offseason? They do have the money. I don't know that they have the guts. But the Red Sox better be in the conversation for Shohei. I don't know that Shohei Otani will choose the Red Sox for whatever reason, but they've got to be in the conversation. I do not want the Red Sox to be outbid for Shohei Otani. If look, let's just let's just put it out on the table. Let's say that the Mets, the Dodgers, the Yankees. The Mariners, the Texas Rangers, the Boston Red Sox, let's say they all offer $600 million contracts. Well, at that rate, if Otani picks to go somewhere else, then I got to throw my hands up and say, you know what? We tried. We came to the table with our best offer. We matched everybody else, and he just decided he wanted to live in X place. I'll have to live with that. What I can't have is... The Red Sox offering five hundred million, and the Texas Rangers offering six thirty, and him choosing them, and us saying, "Well, hey, they, they tried a good offer." No, the Red Sox have the money 
to be swimming in the Shohei Otani waters, and they better be swimming in them. If he just chooses somewhere different, then that's that's him, right? You can't change the city that you play in. The thing the Red Sox need is a good experience this year for Yoshida so Yoshida can go and talk to him because Yoshida and Otani are clearly friends, obviously, and have played together on the WBC roster for Japan where they won a title. You need Yoshida to enjoy his experience so he can go back to Otani and say, hey, this is a pretty good spot. So, yeah, the, the Red Sox need to be doing everything they can for Yoshida, hopefully that the word gets back to Otani. Um, we're going to get Tim Haggerty here in about seven minutes, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, there was one non-baseball thing I wanted to get to here, and... Oh, no, I do want to get to a baseball thing. This was one I was seeing on social media. I don't know if you saw this in the game today. Tristan Casas pimped a walk. Right? When we say somebody pimped something, means they they showed off. So Casas had a 14-pitch at bat, drew a walk, and then let out a huge scream and bat flipped. Right, I think I've got the highlight of that. So let me see if I can find it real quick. I don't know what they said about it on the radio broadcast. I happened to be watching the TV broadcast at that point of time. But Casas pimps the walk, right? He bat flips it. He lets out the large scream. And Rays fans online were just absolutely crushing him for this. Say, come on, bro. Act like you've been there before. You didn't win the World Series. Here you go. Balls, two strikes. The 14th pitch of the at-bat to Casas comes home, and he takes inside ball four and screams at the third base dugout, thrilled with his walk. That is unusual from Casas. He earned the walk, and he barks his pleasure, two on, one out for Dahlbeck. I got a smile out of Corey. Can't stop laughing. <laughs> Everyone's wondering what that was. We got a smirk from the captain. He took ball four. I know it's a battle, but it was like a war scream. Oh, my goodness. I got to tell you, Rays fans were crushing Casas again. This, he didn't hit a homer. He didn't win the game. I got no problem with it, man. We're, we want players to show emotion. We want players to get excited. Casas is hitting like 100. The team's lost three straight. They're trying to beat a team that's won 12 straight. I have no problem with it. I actually, I actually enjoyed it. I appreciated it. It looked like the Red Sox for a second were going to get off the mat. So, I, yeah, I had no issue with it. Some people did. I actually responded on Twitter to one Rays fan who was like, who was ripping him. I said, uh-uh, no. When you're playing as poorly as they're playing, when you're getting your backside handed to you like they are, you got to show some emotion. You got to be... You got to be willing to do that. Text says... uh, that scream was almost as crazy as DeMar DeRozan's daughter last night in Toronto. Yeah, DeMar DeRozan's daughter is, like, all over television today. I mean, yeah. Uh, he, he said she is not going to Miami for the other playing game, for the uh, official playing game to get in, the winner-take-all playing game. Celtics, speaking of basketball, we are going to have two more playing games tomorrow. The eight seeds will be decided in the West. It will be the Timberwolves and the Pelicans in the East. It will be the... Raptors and the uh, Heat. Raptors are the first 10 seed to win a play-in game. So interesting stuff there out of last night's victory for them. And a good game. I watched 
most of the fourth quarter in that one. I didn't need to watch too much of it. Celtics will take on the Hawks. That'll come up on Saturday afternoon at 3.30. We are going to get to some Patriots in the back end of the show because I have something that I've been sitting on for a bit that I wanted to talk about with them. But we will continue our baseball conversation next with our friend Tim Haggerty. Tim Haggerty is a broadcaster for the El Paso Chihuahuas. That's right, the El Paso Chihuahuas, the AAA affiliate of the San Diego Padres. He got his start right here in Vermont as a student at NVU Linden. We're going to catch up with Tim Haggerty, and we're going to do it next. Here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM and FM, brought to you by Fecto Homes. The Brady Farkas Show now has an interactive text line, so reach out now at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here at WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Had a lot of good conversation earlier in the show today about the Boston Red Sox. I want to transition back into baseball, but I want to do it on a different level because we're going to be joined now by Tim Haggerty. Tim Haggerty is a name that you should know. What's a name a lot of you do know? Tim Haggerty is a NVU Linden product who is the AAA broadcaster for the San Diego Padres, their franchise out in El Paso, the El Paso Chihuahuas. He's been doing that job for more than a decade. He's just written a book, which we're going to get to as well. And Tim Haggerty is on the phone line with us now. Again, baseball conversation here in the 6 o'clock hour, not involving the Red Sox. Tim, thanks for being with us. How are you? Great. Thank you, Brady. Great to be back with you and awesome to be back on the air in Vermont. When's the last time you were in Vermont? My wife and I visited in 2013, drove back through the Northeast Kingdom. It's just uh, a stunning place. You know, we cut through Danville, saw Joe's Pond, <laughs> went up to the uh, Lindenville area. And I also love like the northern Northeast Kingdom up there and Island Pond and, um, you know, the Newport area, just a, a stunning area. So, you know, Vermont's so special. People listening know this already, but when you travel to other states, it's just so unique, those Small towns, neighbors know each other, uh, such a sense of community, the town general stores. I used to love broadcasting high school basketball <laughs> games there in the Northeast Kingdom. It just felt like these whole towns were there in these gyms. Very, very special. Well, I want to talk about your career in baseball. You just wrote a book recently about some of your experiences in baseball. I want to get to that, but let me stick on the Vermont thing for a minute. You were from Massachusetts originally. You went to college at NVU Linden. What brought you into Vermont in the first place? Why did you choose NVU Linden? My high school in Massachusetts had this broadcast class. We would produce shows that aired on the town cable access station. I did play-by-play of games. So I was pretty lucky that when I was 17, I knew I wanted to get into broadcasting and even had a little bit of experience for a high school kid doing that. Uh, the high school guidance counselor, Mr. Carter, told me about Linden State, which is what it was called at the time. You know, I knew Montpelier. I knew Burlington. I had never heard of Lindenville. Uh, went up there. And as soon as I saw those facilities they have, they have a beautiful TV station, a great radio station. I knew this is a place I seriously wanted to go. And the other thing I loved is how um, if you really had the drive, like right there, your freshman year, you could get on the air. Some bigger broadcast schools, you're in a classroom the first two years, and then you get on the air when you're a junior. Um, But I already had wet my appetite in high school. I wanted to get on the air at age 18 right away. 
and was lucky enough to do that in both the TV station and the radio station. And I still think about Linden State all the time because there's times in my current job where something changes right before a broadcast and you're having to write something fast to get it on the air. I mean, those are skills that I learned in college, how to really on a deadline, try to make this good, but not perfect and get it on the air. Speaking of a deadline, baseball has been played on a deadline this year at the major league level with the implementation of the pitch clock and the new rules about disengagements and pickoffs and throwovers. This is something you've been dealing with in the minor leagues for the last couple of years as kind of the test case scenario. What's been your overall impression of the changes that have come to baseball that we're seeing now that you have seen implemented and kind of phased in before? I think they're great. I think if you asked me in 2012, does baseball need a pitch timer? I would say no. There's no clocks in baseball. (laughs) But as the game evolved and as there was more and more time between balls and play, it wasn't the same sport that I grew up loving. There wasn't that pace and rhythm maybe that you and I watched when we were younger. So to me, the style of baseball, the way it was evolving, something had to be done. So when people say that a pitch clock is changing the game, to me, having called a couple hundred games with this enforced pitch clock rule, it's actually brought the game back to normal. Hmm. To me, the rhythm and the pace feels like the baseball I knew. And I remember during the MLB lockout in 2022, MLB Network was airing old World Series games. And it was the 2012 World Series, Giants and Tigers. And even then, Brady, that game felt different and better than the one I was watching in 2021. Um, So to me, I don't think you have to revive it back to the 1980s. To me, I think the early 2000s is a great version of baseball you know, 15, 20 seconds between pitches. That's normal. That's what it should be. (laughs) Do you like, do you like the idea of it being 15 seconds with, with nobody on base? The one complaint we've heard from pitchers that they'd like to see it be 20 seconds all the time. Um, You know, especially as we get to the ninth inning where, you know, a reliever might have to think a little bit more about his plan. They like, they want it to be 20 seconds. What's your thought on that? That's reasonable. And I think that players for the most part deserve some credit because you have some veteran pitchers that, Kyle Freeland of the Colorado Rockies said on the record, said the way that the game evolved, this is our fault and it's up to us to change and make these adjustments. So I do think that veteran pitchers deserve a pat on the back because they are having to adjust their routines. Yeah. I think that's reasonable maybe to look at the exact length of the pitch clock. And I think that MLB has done a good job of keeping an open mind. We saw some small tinkering between the end of spring training and the beginning of the regular season, for example, And I think MLB also did a good job with these rules experiments because in the minor leagues, what they would do is isolate individual leagues and say, we're going to study the no shift here. We're going to study the pitch timer here. They really wanted to isolate each rule experiment and see in live game situations what happened. Um, This is not something that you could just draw up on a spreadsheet or in a boardroom. You needed actual professional baseball players going through these rules to actually see what happened. We're talking with NVU Linden product and minor league broadcaster Tim Haggerty here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV. Ten years he's been the voice of the uh, El Paso Chihuahuas, the AAA team for the Padres. Hard to believe, I'm sure, that it's been a decade for you there at AAA. I'm curious about your long-term goals. And the reason why I ask is I think, you know, the, the obvious answer is everybody wants to always get as high as they possibly can. But I know at least in my career, that was my initial goal. And then at some point it kind of shifted to where I like where I am. Let me ask you just kind of about your major league aspirations and and where you are now, et cetera. Good for you for recognizing that and staying present and realizing you have a great gig now. That's a gift when people can realize that. And I've had a similar feeling. I think that most, if not all AAA announcers 
are striving to get better, striving to make new contacts and get a major league opportunity. Uh, the gig in El Paso is so good. We are in a spectacular ballpark. The team is well supported. It's a big city. A lot of people listen that I think it's made me more selective. Uh, this past winter, there was a job for a major league baseball team to be the radio pregame and postgame show host and to do very little play by play. Um, I think a decade ago, I enthusiastically would apply maybe even mm -hmm. a decade ago, maybe send a CD as opposed to a link. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, but I think that now I'm more selective where if something's going to lure me out of El Paso, it would have to be really special. So that example I just gave, I did not pursue that because to me, at least for me, that's no insult to the person who got that job. It's just for me, my current job I think is more desirable than that one. So yeah, there's certain situations that, I pursue, but there's not many of them. You know, it's interesting. I love minor league baseball, but I love minor league baseball from the baseball perspective. Like a lot of people love minor league baseball for kind of the environment perspective. And I guess I like that too. But when I go to a minor league game, I like watching prospects and I like figuring out who the next big thing is or watching the guy who's number one on all the charts. You're in kind of an interesting spot there in AAA. Because logically, people think, wow, you're seeing the top prospects. But a lot of guys will skip AAA now and just go straight from AA to the majors. So what is it like for you kind of in terms of seeing some of the top prospects in baseball? Do you get to see a lot of them or do a lot of them skip right past AAA? In rare examples, they will go straight from AA to the majors. I do think if you look at it, most major leaguers spent at least part of a season in AAA. And to me, it's the most interesting level from a storyline perspective. For example, last year in El Paso, we had 39-year-old Robinson Cano trying to get back to the majors for that final burst in the big leagues, which he did get. We also had 21-year-old C.J. Abrams on his mm -hmm. way to really trying to establish himself in the major leagues, which he did. And these guys are teammates, and they became friends, and they're 18 years apart. And on the <laughs> air, that just allows you so many stories to tell. So I broadcasted AA games for three years, and if you look at the prospect rankings – more of those names are probably in AA than AAA. But in AAA, any time, any team could have a couple of players in the big leagues. The next, uh, if you look at the Padres over the past couple of years, there might be two players that go from AA San Antonio to San Diego over the course of a season. There are 25 El Paso players that will go from El Paso to the major leagues. Um, so while the players are younger at double A, you know, I love the fact that I'm calling a game at triple A. And then the next night, that guy that I saw hit a home run at triple A is on ESPN playing in the Sunday night national <laughs> game, for example. Very, very cool for sure. Also very, very cool. You just wrote this book kind of your, uh, it, it just came out this, uh, two weeks ago or so, I think, um, uh, about your experiences in baseball and some of the stories. I remember reading one of the, I have not read the whole book yet, but one of the excerpts was about a, uh, wiener dog that attacked attacked in quotes Corey Seager tell me about some of the stories from the book in 2015 El Paso was at home against Oklahoma City as you mentioned the team name is the Chihuahuas we live in the Chihuahuan desert so that's part of it and there was a between innings wiener dog promotion race <laughs> there's five of these wiener dogs and four of them ran where they were supposed to but one of them went rogue made a turn and started running all over the infield and they had to delay the game for a couple of minutes as players scampered around trying to get this wiener dog. Uh, that video went viral. It ended up on Good Morning America. So there I am doing play-by-play -play of a wiener dog running around. 
You're like yeah. Kevin Harlan calling the cat in the yes, uh, end zone at Monday right. Night Football. That's ex- you're you're like the minor league version of Kevin Harlan, right? Um, and you're right, though, as far as the big name, Corey Seager, as we look back at that video, he's one of the Oklahoma City infielders there that the dog runs by. Uh, so that's included in my book with a great illustration. The publisher, Cider Mill Press, they're known for their visual books. So the book is full of cartoonish illustrations about these crazy baseball stories. And out of the 1,001 quick stories in the book, only about 20 are from games that I called. I love baseball history. So many of them are ones that I researched and found in newspaper archives old magazine archives, or interviewing people. Any Vermont stories in there? Yes. I love this story. Uh, let me pull up my notes and get the date right. So, The, the and- book is called, by the way, will you do that, Tales from the Dugout, 1001 Humorous, Inspirational, and Wild Anecdotes from Minor League Baseball. So there you go. Find it on Amazon and others, I'm sure. So now, go ahead. Now I want to hear the Vermont stories. Thank you. So in 2003, one of the final years that the team at Centennial Field was known as the Vermont Expos, as Vermonters know, um, the Expos went to Washington, D.C. after the 2004 season, but the Vermont Expos kept that name even longer in 2005. So this is a couple of years before that, 2003, and the Vermont Expos start off the season 0-5. And as a way to maybe make something positive out of this and get some attention, the general manager, C.J. Knudsen, says he's going to sleep in the dugout <laughs> until the Expos win a game, and that a new staff member is going to join him, also sleeping in that area, every game that passes (laughs) he's thinking you know in the next few nights they're going to win a game the losing streak goes up to 12 so for seven days he was sleeping in the dugout at centennial field and he has new staff members joining him every night and finally they win a game and this got all kinds of national attention it was on national radio programs uh he was interviewed on some big tv shows uh i love that that's a great story. And CJ Newton is still the general manager of the Vermont Lake Monsters, who are now sadly not playing affiliated baseball, but are playing in the Futures Collegiate Baseball League. Uh, so CJ, CJ is still around, and I'm sure that story still gets told and remembered. Tim Haggerty, also always remembered for his time at NVU Linden, and now the broadcaster, AAA San Diego Padres affiliate in El Paso for the Chihuahuas. Tim, thanks for being with us today, and uh, we appreciate it, and we'll catch up down the road. Thank you, Brady. Yeah, that story about C.J. Newson, that is uh, that is classic. I have heard that before. Tim Haggerty told it very, very well, though. And that's a book now that uh, I want to go and read the whole thing of. I love stuff like that. I love observations, things that I didn't know. He's got a story in there I know about a 1978 minor league game where a ball just vanished out of thin air and nobody knows what happened to it. So I got to hear more about that story, Tim Haggerty. NVU Linden product. Uh, hasn't been to Vermont, though. In like a decade. He needs to get back here for sure. But very cool to talk with him and uh, comes on the heels of a good conversation we had earlier in the show about Red Sox baseball. I do want to finish up the show and transition, though, into football because there's a Patriot storyline I've been sitting on here for a bit. With all the turmoil between Bill Belichick and Mac Jones, there is one key figure that has to be the perfect go-between in their relationship I'll tell you who that is next on the Brady Farkas Show, brought to you by Fecto Homes on WDEV AM and FM. Make your opinion heard by texting onto the Brady Farkas Show at 802-585-3026. This is former NFL wide receiver Keyshawn Johnson, and now we're back to the Brady Farkas Show on... WDEV Radio and WDEV 
Radio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on this Thursday on WDEV AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. No Red Sox baseball tonight. Red Sox already played this afternoon against the Tampa Bay Rays in a game you heard right here on DEV. I want to switch over from all the baseball conversation of the day. I want to finish up with something on the Patriots because it's something that I've been thinking about for a while, right? And I've kind of had this segment in my mind for the last couple of weeks, and we just haven't really had a chance to get to it, but... Through all the Patriots drama and through all the Mac Jones, Bill Belichick stuff and all the stuff about will Mac get traded and does Bill really believe in him and all that, there's I've had this thought in my mind. Bill O'Brien is a hugely important figure for the Patriots this year. And it's he's a hugely important figure for a couple of different reasons. One is the obvious. He is going to be in charge of running the offense. The offense was a problem last year. The offense was the problem last year. So on the surface, it's easy to see why Bill O'Brien is an important figure for this year's Patriots, right? He's a guy in charge of putting all the ingredients in the soup and getting it to taste good. And that's what this team needs. If this team could have a good offense, could have a very good offense, they would have a puncher's chance both in the AFC East and in the AFC. I've said repeatedly they're the 11th or 12th best team in the conference. But if Bill O'Brien can truly fix the offense, then they have a puncher's chance to be a top eight team. And a top eight team puts you right in square position to have a playoff run in you. A chance to get to the playoffs and make a playoff run. Right? That, that's obvious. We can all see that. But even more so... Bill O'Brien is hugely important in terms of being the bridge between Mac Jones and Bill Belichick. Because it's very, very clear that Mac Jones and Bill Belichick have a rocky relationship. I'm not saying that it's irreparable, irreparable, but at the very least, it's rocky. And Bill O'Brien is the guy who's going to be tasked with being the go-between between them. He's going to be the guy that Mac needs to lean on. He's going to be the guy that has to be the good cop for Mac Jones. Because to me, if I'm Mac, I'm looking at Bill Belichick now with a side eye. I'm looking at Bill Belichick with a hint of distrust. And that's not a real healthy place to be, but that's how I would be looking at Bill Belichick if I were Mac Jones. So if you're going to look at Bill with distrust then your offensive coordinator, you've got to trust implicitly. If you're going to not quite believe in the head coach, if you're going to not quite love the head coach, you got to love the offensive coordinator. And Bill O'Brien has to be a guy that Mac can love. It's that simple. The relationship between Bill O'Brien and Mac Jones is going to be huge this year is going to be huge because the relationship between Bill and Mac, Bill Belichick and Mac, isn't necessarily going to be great. And if you want to get the best out of Mac Jones, which this team needs, this team needs the best out of everybody, right? We talk about the Red Sox being a bunch of maybes and needing the best out of everybody to overachieve. The Patriots are kind of the same way. They need the best out of everybody. They need the best out of Mac, and Bill O'Brien's relationship with him will help be able to do that. And there's another part of this that's important. Bill Belichick needs to also trust and empower Bill O'Brien. Bill Belichick needs to let Bill O'Brien run Mac Jones the way he sees fit. Okay, because here's what I think 
is needed. Mac Jones needs to pick me up. Mac Jones needs somebody in his corner. Mac Jones needs to be coddled a little bit at this point, right? Bill can be the bad cop. He can be the hard ass in the film room. But Bill O'Brien's going to have to be the guy that goes to him and picks him up. He's going to have to play the good cop. He's going to have to be the fun uncle with Mac Jones. That's what Mac Jones needs. And Bill Belichick is going to have to let Bill O'Brien play that role. I know that's not in Bill Belichick's nature. But he's going to have to make it in his nature this year because this kid was broken a year ago. Bill Belichick needs to empower Bill O'Brien to do that with Mac Jones. It can't just be, hey, teach the kid a lesson. It can't be, hey, let's just rip him because he's the quarterback. It can't just be, hey, let's keep him in line. Bill O'Brien needs the freedom to run the offense from a play-calling perspective the way he wants, but he also needs the freedom to coach Mac the way that Mac needs to be coached. And what I'm telling you is that Mac needs a little bit of love. And I don't think that makes Mac soft. Mac Jones was broken last year. The repairing process this year is going to be extensive. And Bill Belichick's not going to be the guy that does it. Bill O'Brien's going to be the guy that does it. He needs to be the voice that Mac goes to. He needs to be the voice that Mac trusts. He needs to be the guy that Mac will listen to, the guy that will listen to Mac. I know Bill Belichick is ultimately in charge, and what he says to Bill O'Brien behind closed doors might be one thing, but what gets said to Mac Jones needs to be another. Mac Jones has only had the bad cop for the last year, right? Bill Belichick's bad cop, Joe Judge's bad cop, Matt Patricia doesn't know what he's doing. Mac Jones has only had the bad cop for the 2022 season. The 2023 season needs him to have some good cop, and Bill O'Brien is a huge part of that. Something else I saw that was very interesting and I wanted to mention today is just how important Bill O'Brien can be to the Patriots' draft process, right? The draft's coming up in two weeks. Just how important can Bill O'Brien be in the Patriots' draft room and the Patriots' draft process? Andy Hart of uh, WEEI in Boston was speaking on TV the other day just about that. But that's a resource. He has seen the offensive players. He's seen. He has studied this. He has talked to other coaches. Like He has lived in that world, so... I think you would be doing yourself a disservice if you don't have Bill O'Brien just active in the... I'm not saying let him make the mm-hmm. pick. Nope. You, your collaboration, whatever it is, with Grow, who seems to fixate a year ago. If you want to get fast players, you speed. draft fast players. Speed, speed, speed. speed. Or Bill, old school, but Bill O'Brien should be in the conversation. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I agree completely with that. You don't let your offensive coordinator make the pick. You never let your offensive... Co- you never let your coordinators make picks because your coordinators might not be long for the job. Right, We don't know that Bill O'Brien is not going to stay in New England for a year and then subsequently move on and become a head coach somewhere. Right, We don't know that. The only guy who's really going to be there for a while is the head coach. Right, So the head coach, I get why Bill Belichick has the ultimate final say, and that makes sense. But you should be in the room if you're Bill O'Brien. You should be allowed to be in the room. Andy Hart is right. Bill O'Brien just spent a couple of years in the SEC. He has seen a lot of the players that 
are going to be in consideration for the Patriots to draft. I'm sure he has not seen all of them, at least up close. But when it comes to the SEC guys, he has when it comes when it comes to the Alabama guys, he's coached them perfectly, right? You should be drawing on that resource. When it comes to the SEC guys on defense, he has game planned for them. When it comes to the SEC guys on offense, I'm sure he has institutional knowledge of what those guys are like. When it comes to the broader college football spectrum as a whole, I'm not entirely sure. But Alabama played teams in the non-conference, and Bill O'Brien coached against guys. Alabama played a team in a bowl game, and Bill O'Brien coached against guys. Alabama played a game last year, and God, it's it's on the tip of my tongue right now, but Alabama almost lost that game, ended up losing. Uh, man, I can't remember. I'll have to get to it, but I'll have to look it up. But they wanted a late field goal. You know, Bill O'Brien coached against that team. So Bill O'Brien has knowledge of guys in the college game. That's exactly what you should do. I remember this is so far removed from the NFL, but look, when I was coaching in when when I was coaching junior college baseball, I was a good recruiter because why? I had knowledge of these guys because my brother had played against them. I had seen these guys growing up. I had seen guys that were coming up into college, I'd seen them since they were 10, 12 years old. I knew who they were already. I had a leg up on guys because on other schools because I, I knew who these people were. Bill O'Brien is the same way. So the Patriots should utilize that resource and that expertise. Doesn't mean you let him make the pick. You still have a scouting staff. You still have a scouting director. You still have you know, other area scouts around the country. But Bill O'Brien is a guy who's another voice in the room. And that voice deserves to be heard. Now, there's the other side of things about people who have their voices heard too loud end up out of Foxborough, like Brian Hoyer and Jacoby Myers, and now maybe Mac Jones is wanted out the door. So, Bill O'Brien, you can't overstep yourself. But when you, but Bill Belichick should be asking you the questions. You should give an honest answer. And then at that point, you should probably leave it alone, right? You don't want to get too loud if you're Bill O'Brien. But ask a question answer a question, give an honest assessment, and move on. Completely fair and completely necessary for this year's Patriots team as they get ready for the draft. This is a huge draft for the Pats. They're all huge drafts in the NFL. This is a huge draft for the Pats. They're at 14. The goal is to not be picking that high again. So you have a chance at 14 to go get a difference maker. And in theory, you don't need a quarterback at that spot. So you can go out and get a difference maker at any number of positions. And the Patriots have a lot of needs. They got a need at wideout. They got a lead at, need at DB. They got a need at offensive lineman, specifically at tackle. There are a lot of different ways that this can go. And the Pats have a chance at 14 to get a difference maker. Maybe they can get Jackson Smith and Jigba out of Ohio State at wideout. Maybe they can get the kid from USC, Jordan Addison, Zay Flowers from Boston College. Maybe they can go get a DB, a Joey Porter Jr. I don't know, but at 14, you got a chance to get a difference maker. Bill O'Brien, I think, is a guy that should have at least the ability to give an assessment. It's the Brady Farkas Show brought to you by Fecto Homes here on WDEV, AM and FM at WDEVradio.com. That's going to do it for us. No Red Sox baseball tonight. Again, Sox were on earlier today. We'll talk all about the carnage of this series with the Rays with our guy Buster Olney. Buster is going to be with us tomorrow. Again, we had a day game today, so Buster wanted to join us tomorrow and have the full results of that game and kind of look at the series as a whole. So Buster will be with us tomorrow at 545. Always look forward to talking with him 
Uh, thanks to Tim Haggerty for stopping by. Really cool stuff from the Linden State product or the, I guess I should say, Northern Vermont University Linden product who's made his headway in uh, minor league baseball as a broadcaster. He was great as well. You can find that interview on the podcast channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at WDEVradio.com. So we appreciate his time. Jazz with George Thomas is coming up next. This has been the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM and FM.